Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we are in Hebrews this morning, and if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. So um, the end of Hebrews um, chapter 6, and and actually the writer has mentioned it once before, but he mentions uh, a guy by the name of Melchizedek. And uh, in chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, the writer tells us that Jesus has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so uh, as he gets into chapter 7 now, chapter 7 is basically uh, devoted to explaining what he means to the Jewish believers. Now, to understand the the mindset of the Jewish believers, uh, you know, the law, before they come to Christ as as a Jew, the law is all important and following it is all important. And uh, they revere Moses, they revere Abraham, and, uh, and they revere the Levitical priesthood. And now there's now they're, they, you know they've come to faith in Christ Jesus. They understand that He's their High Priest. But there's I'm sure there's this there's this intellectual, you know, this mountain that they have to go around about Jesus being the High Priest, and 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 He's not according to the order of Levi. And so um, as the writer explains this, now he's going to go in and he's going to just basically devote this chapter that we're going to look at this morning uh, to give the, uh, the readers an, a better foundation on what he's talking about. So before we actually dig into chapter 7, we need to get a better understanding of who Melchizedek was. And he's only mentioned a few times in the Bible. The first time he's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to be reading a portion of that. You can feel free to look at that if you want, Genesis chapter 14, or you can just listen as I read it. But it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, or Elasar, Shadar Laomor, I wish they were like Bud and Jim and Sue, you know. <laughs> Shedalormar, uh, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Shedalormar, uh, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, uh, that guy, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Carnaim, uh, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emmon in Shavakiriathaim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishphat, uh, that is Kadesh and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizan, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, uh, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Shedalormar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Armraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Uh, Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abraham's son, who dwelt there in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. 
is Abraham was actually his uncle, um, so Lot was his nephew. But what's interesting is in this chapter, we discover Lot living in the city of Sodom. He didn't start out in Sodom. He started out actually pitching his tent close to Sodom, where, he, where Sodom was in those two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, were in view of where he pitched his tent. Um, we've been going through Proverbs, uh, like I mentioned in our men's Bible study, and he reminds me of the young man who's devoid of understanding in Proverbs chapter 7. The, the young man who's devoid in, in chapter 7 of understanding in Proverbs, he wanders down the path toward the harlot's house just taking a stroll in the dark uh, towards the, ho- uh, the uh, harlot's house. And lo and behold, she meets him there, and she seduces him. And the Bible says, immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. And the lesson of that proverb is really summed up in, pro- in verse 25. The, 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 the Solomon, I'm assuming, is this, the writer of it, and he's telling his son, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, do not stray into her paths. You know, you set yourself up for failure if you go into a place where you know you're going to be tempted. That's basically what he's saying. Don't wander that place. Well, here Lot, he started out in view of the city. He probably should have just stayed clear of that place, but he got close to it. Eventually, he got comfortable being close to it. Now he's actually living in the city of Sodom. And as a result of that, the, 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 the attack that takes place on Sodom, the, you know, the king of Sodom and the, 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 the inhabitants are all taken captive. Well, Lot is, you know, he's part of that. So he's taken captive as well. He's seized along with the, all the other people as booty of war, basically. In verse 13, it says, Then one who had escaped uh, came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by, their, uh, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as all the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shalalomar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, this is the first time we hear him, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, being Abram, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he, being Abram, gave him a tithe of all. So who was this king and priest named Melchizedek? If you go to four different commentaries, you'll have five different opinions. Uh, Nobody really knows. But there are a lot of different opinions about who he is. I'm going to just share what my opinion is and, you know, take it for what it's worth. My opinion is that this is a Christophany. What's a Christophany? It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe it. Now, you know, it's not a salvation issue. So, you know, if you don't believe it, don't get all hung up about it. I'm just going to share my opinion about it. 
But whoever Melchizedek is, he comes out and he meets Abraham returning from the battle. And he brings out bread and wine. Bread and wine, that sounds familiar. Well, yeah, it's a picture of communion in the New Testament. Communion, bread and wine. You know, the Old Testament saints, in faith, they looked forward to the death of Christ on the cross. The New Testament saints, you and I, you know, we look backwards to, in faith to Christ's death on the cross. And as Christians, we partake of communion in remembrance of what Jesus did, in remembrance of who he is. And I believe here, Abraham partook of Melchizedek's bread and wine in anticipation of Jesus. Well, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives uh, Melchizedek a tithe. What's a tithe? It's a tenth. Uh, It's a tenth of what he has till Melchizedek. Very fascinating story, if you ask me. You don't hear anything more about Melchizedek in the Old Testament until David, in Psalm 110, verse 4, he's prophesying the Messiah. And there he says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the last time you hear of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. That's it. Until we get to Hebrews in the New Testament. And now the writer says, Jesus has been called by God according to the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So now we're going to move to chapter 7 of Hebrews as the writer explains it. So verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Why do I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ and not just a man who is, a sim- who is like a symbol or a picture of Jesus? Here's my first reason. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. He's the king of Salem, which was a city, and he was priest of the Most High God. And as you go through the Old Testament, Israel's kings were not allowed to officiate as priests. God kept those roles separate. Now, prophets and priests, they overlapped, but kings and priests never overlapped. There were a couple of kings who tried to do that, and the results were a disaster. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, King Saul was the first one to try that. He was impatiently waiting for Samuel, uh, the priest and the prophet, to come uh, to arrive at Gilgal to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And Samuel wasn't coming. And the Philistines, there's a battle of the Philistines approaching. And, and so Samuel, or excuse me, Saul grew impatient. And so he said, man, I'm going I'm to take care of it myself. And he went into uh, the temple, not the temple, but into the tabernacle. And he went in and offered a burnt offering before the Lord. And at that point, God rejected Saul from being king of Israel and replaced him with David, a man after his own heart. He was rejected because he did that. The second time was in Second Chronicles chapter 26. Near the end of his reign, King Uzziah, 
He was angry with the priests of the Lord, and he took a censer of incense and went in uh, into the presence of the Lord, and he went to offer burn, uh, burn incense on the altar of the Lord. And the Bible says, just as he did it, God struck him with leprosy. And he remained a leper to the end of his life. Only one person can be both king and priest, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And that, that's one of the reasons why I don't think Melchizedek it was just a man. I think this is a picture of Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ, in the, or appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's interesting because the writer says, looking at his names, first being translated king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem. Salem is the word for peace. So king of righteousness uh, and then king of peace. And it's interesting that he says that. First, righteousness, and then peace. You know, there are a lot of people that are seeking peace in this world, but they're not seeking righteousness. They're never going to find peace. Because you can't have peace apart from righteousness. Right? The only, for you and I, the only way for you and I to have peace with God is through Christ's righteousness. That's the only way. You try to do it any other way, you'll never have peace. So it's interesting that he says it that way. So that was the first reason that Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. Here's the second reason that I believe that it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He says, Melchizedek was without father or mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, some people, they say, well, he was just just a man. And as far as the Bible is concerned, there's no genealogical record in scriptures. There's no, there's no mention of, of his parents. He had parents, but the scriptures doesn't mention it. And there's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. And so they say, well, as, as far as scriptures sees Melchizedek, he has no father, no mother, no beginning, or no end. And so therefore, it's just a man. And, and you know, I can see their point. And maybe if that's your opinion, I can see your point. If that was the only reason or the only argument, then I'd say, yeah, you know, you're, it could very well be. But that's not the only reason. And I want to kind of take a little side trip here for a minute. Um, you know, I love the book of Genesis. If you've never read or studied through the book of Genesis, I encourage you to do it. Well, you know, Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 10 is kind of a genealogical record of Adam down to Noah. And in Genesis chapter 11, there's another genealogical record, and it's about Noah's sons. And Shem, who was the son of Noah... He had a son, in Genesis 11.10, it says that Shem had a son named Arphasad two years after the flood. And then that verse tells us that Shem was 100 years old when Arphasad was born. So in other words, the flood happened when Shem was just a young lad of 98 years old. You might say, wait, 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 a young lad. What do you mean a young lad? Well, because Genesis 11 tells us that after Arphasad was born... Shem was 100 years old when he was born. The Bible says Shem lived another 500 years. So this man lived six, he was 600 years old. If you follow Shem's genealogy in Genesis chapter 11 and do the math, there's some amazing things to find out there. If you do the math and you follow the genealogy down to Abraham, Shem was a middle-aged man of 390 years old when Abraham was born. Shem was still alive when Abraham was born. That means 
Shem would have been 490 years old when Isaac was born, because Abraham had Isaac 100 years later, right? So Shem would have been 490 years old. Remember, he lived to 600. Uh, In the year before Isaac was born was the year that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, God appeared to Abraham and said, you know, I'm going to give you next year, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. And after that, he, he said, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to share with Abraham what's going on. And he decided to, and he says, you know, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. So why am I going into this? Well, it's a very drawn out way of saying that Shem was alive during the time of Melchizedek because that would have happened before Sodom was destroyed. So Shem was around when Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, king of Salem, came and met Abraham. And there are many people, or actually many Jewish scholars, that believe that Melchizedek was indeed Shem. They say it was Shem. I have a problem with that. And the problem that I have with that is that the Bible records Shem's father. We know it was Noah. We don't know who Noah's wife was, but we know it was Noah. So we, we have a record of his father, and we also have a record of Shem's length of life, which was 600 years. So I don't think Melchizedek was Shem. That's a long way to say that. Um, So regarding the greatness of Melchizedek, the writer continues, verse 4, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, although they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives." Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. So he was still in the, uh, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's kind of a, you kind of get in and go, well, that's kind of confusing. Well, this is what the writer is trying to get across. When God formed the nation of Israel, he formed them from the 12 tribes of Jacob, right? He changed Jacob's name to Israel. His 12 sons became the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, that God appointed and said, this tribe is going to be set apart to be the, my priests. They're going to mediate between me, uh, the people, and me. They're going, to, they're going to serve me in the temple. And so God commanded that the nation of Israel would pay tithes, again, a tenth of their income, to the tribe of Levi, to the Levitical priesthood. And Levi, again, he was the son of Jacob, and Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And so in Genesis chapter 14, in that story, Abraham, he voluntarily paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, the Israelites were commanded to pay tithes to the tribe of Levi. Uh, and then so he's basically, he's kind of explaining that because the Levites were genetically in the loins of Abraham, that's kind of a weird thing to think about, but genetically they were in the loins of Abraham when he paid tithes. Uh, the priesthood of the Levites, who were the descendants of Abraham, they paid tithes, in a sense, to the priesthood of Melchizedek when Abraham paid tithes. And so the writer here is showing that these Hebrew believers, showing the Hebrew believers that Melchizedek was greater than both Abraham and Abraham's descendants because the paying of tithes uh, to Melchizedek predated 
the law to pay tithes to the Levites. Am I making any sense? I mean, it's kind of, okay, all right. I mean, how many different ways can you explain it? I don't know. That's, <laughs> you know what's funny about this? There are Christians today who believe that tithing was part of the old covenant. They say, you know, it's, it, it was part of the law, and we're not under the law as Christians. We're under grace. And so I don't feel like I need to, to pay tithes because I'm not, I'm not under grace. Or excuse me, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And it's true, we are under get grace. But it's an interesting thing. When you look at this passage of Scripture, tithing predated the giving of the law by at least 500 years. Interesting. And Jesus, when he was speaking to the Pharisees, you know, they were the guys that would tithe their, their mint, and they were very exact on their tithes. They made sure they didn't tithe too much. You know, they just tithe very, very minute. They were professional law keepers. And Jesus said, hey, the tithing that they have done, they shouldn't leave it undone. In other words, he said, yeah, you should be tithing. He was telling the Pharisees that, you know, and Jesus was introducing the new covenant apart from the law. And then when you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you see tithing as part of the early church. So, I believe personally that script, uh, scriptures teaches that the principle of tithing is timeless. I'll just leave that with you. You can take that and whatever you want to do with that. Um, so he says, verse 7, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. In this case, the lesser being Abraham was blessed by the better being Melchizedek. What was the blessing? Going back to Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek said this to, to, to Abraham, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That blessing, it wasn't simply wishing Abraham well. Because anyone who's inferior to a superior can say that. You know, I, I wish you well, you know, um, or however you would say it. But Melchizedek here is blessing Abraham much like God had commanded, later on commanded the Levitical priests to bless the children of Israel. And I'm going to read this to you. It's in Numbers 6, verse 22. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is what God says to Moses. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. In other words, God is telling Moses, have the priests pronounce this blessing. I'm authorizing them to pronounce this blessing on the people. And as they do it, I'm, I'm going to bless them. This is the same blessing that Abraham, or excuse me, that Melchizedek was blessing Abraham with. He was declaring God's intention of goodwill to Abraham. And Abraham acknowledged that blessing, and he acknowledged that Melchizedek was greater in that he received the blessing, and in response, he paid a tithe to Melchizedek. The third reason I believe Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ is because of verse 8. I can't get around verse 8. It says, here, mortal men receive tithes. Here, being the discussion of the tribe of Levites receiving tithes, as he's giving as, as an example there. The Levites were mortal men who received tithes. But then he says, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. There being the story of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 receiving tithes. 
So the contrast, he's making a contrast here, is that the Levites were mortal men, but Melchizedek was not a mere mortal man, but lives. And notice that the, the present tense, but he lives. Now, at this point, I just want to say one thing. I've given you three reasons why I believe Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. My point in sharing all this with you is not to attempt to convince you that Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus Christ. You know, to me, that's almost like an intellectual exercise. My point is not to try to convince you that. There are many fine Christian scholars. Like I said, if you go to four different very good commentaries, you'll get five different opinions. Um, So I'm not saying you need to believe this. You know, it's an important thing. And if you don't believe this, you're less spiritual. Sometimes people try to say that. If you don't believe like I do, you're not very spiritual. Because I've got the answers. I'm not saying that, okay? Don't, don't get me wrong. You're no less spiritual if you disagree with me, or you're not more spiritual if you agree with me. I just like you more. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. If our focus was merely to make the point of who Melchizedek actually was, then we've missed this, the point of this entire chapter. Because that's not the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is to explain to those Jewish readers that Jesus is a better high priest than the Levitical priesthood. That's the whole point of this chapter. That's what you and I need to understand. And so in verse 11, he says, therefore. Now he's going to give him the reason, therefore. Verse 11, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly command, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. Verse 11. If the Levitical priesthood called according to Aaron, Aaron was the first high priest, were perfect, his argument is, why would there be a need for a change in the priesthood to have a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? If God had at all, you know, it was all set with the tribe of Levi, why, why do we have to even mention Melchizedek? Why fix something that's not broke? That's a good rule to live by, (laughs) by the way. Why fix it if it's not broke? And if the Old Testament law established that only men from the tribe of Levi could officiate as priests, then we have a problem, Houston. Because Jesus, the better high priest, did not come from the tribe of Levi, right? He came from the tribe of Judah. Judah The tribe of Judah was never mentioned as being priests, only the tribe of Levi. And then in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 15, he says, And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, where he testifies, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Listen, Jesus is a better high priest because the Levitical priests, why were they, you know, they were called basically according to who their daddy was, right? Levi or Aaron. It was a fleshly command. A priest, if you were a Levite and you grew up in the Levitical priesthood or you grew up in the tribe of Levi and you were called to be a priest, it didn't mean you were more spiritual. Like this guy, he deserves to be priest because he's, man, look how godly. No, it just meant you descended from the tribe of Aaron or from the tribe of Levi. And so you're therefore going to be a priest. It did, it, it, the spiritual qualifications kind of didn't even play into it at that point. It was a fleshly command. There was nothing better about a person born from the tribe of Levi than any other tribe of Israel. Just like there's nothing more important about me being a pastor than you being there in the pew. Well, we don't have pews, but in chairs. There's no different. I'm not more spiritual than you are. I'm, I hate to burst your bubbles, but I'm not. Jesus wasn't called to be a priest according to a fleshly command, but according to the power of an endless life. Because every one of those Levitical priests, they died. Every one of them died. But Jesus lives. And then in verse 18, he says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see, the law was weak. It made nothing perfect. It was unable to make someone perfect. You try to obey the law and you can't. There was no one, there is no one, I should say, who is able to keep all the law all the time. It could never make a person perfect. The purpose of the law was not to provide a way for you and I to draw near to God. In fact, we couldn't draw near. Under the law, only the priest could draw near to God for you. You couldn't go into the, you couldn't go into the Holy Holies and draw near to God. The priest did it for you. So what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, and Paul gets into it in the book of Romans, but it's to reveal our utter hopelessness of being able to keep the law. It was a schoolmaster. It was a tutor. It, it was to show us, man, I can't keep the law. I need a Savior. That's the whole purpose for the law, to reveal our need of a Savior. But in Jesus, he says here, we have a better hope, a better hope than a person's hope in the law. You know, there are four adjectives in the New Testament to describe the hope that you and I have in Christ Jesus. Here in verse 18, we have a better hope. Why? Because He is the hope of our salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. And because He is in us, we have the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. That's a better hope than a hope in the law. The Bible also, in the New Testament, also calls it a good hope, 2 Thessalonians 2.16. And, and that's because of God's grace. And it's a blessed hope in Titus 2.13 because of Christ's promise to return for his church. And then in 1 Peter 1.3, it's a living hope. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. We don't, we don't, it's not a belief system that you and I have, Christianity. You know, if I follow this book of rules, you know, God's... You no, know, it's because Jesus rose from the dead. The hope you and I have is not wishful thinking. Because sometimes I think hope sounds like wishful thinking. No, it's God's divine promise to us and it's anticipation of the fulfillment of that promise. That's what our hope is. And through the object of our hope, Jesus Christ, 
we may draw near to God, something the law was never able to do. The law was never able to make a man draw near to God. But through Jesus Christ, the Bible says, man, you and I can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. We talked about that last week in chapter 6. God made an oath uh, to, to the Messiah, to Jesus, that he would be a priest called according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. God didn't need to confirm his promise with an oath, but he did it for your and for my benefit to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he declared Jesus a priest forever. Again, we talked about it last week. If you weren't here and you're like, what's he talking about? You can go on the Internet. We've got the message on the Internet. You can listen to it. God never swore an oath when he called Aaron and his sons to be priests of the nation of Israel, but he did when he called Jesus. When you call the Messiah. Verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That Levitical priesthood, it passed down through the generations because eventually a high priest would die. And then they'd need to appoint a new high priest. There would be another man who would take his place. But Jesus is a better high priest because he lives. And because he lives, his role as a priest is continuing even today for you and I. The Bible tells us there are five things that Jesus, our high priest, is able. And you know what able means? Capable, strong, powerful. There are five things that uh, Jesus, our priest, is able to do. In Romans 16.25, and these things, we need to understand this. He's able to establish you. He's able to make you firm in your faith, to make you stable He's also able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Ephesians 3.20. I was reminded of that last night. You know, when, when uh, Brooke Gornson came into the house, she was, the, the night before, she was a wreck. I mean, you know, just, she was a wreck. I mean, emotionally, she was really wiped out. And it was a hard day for her and a hard seeing. And we went and visited him and yeah, he didn't look good at all. And, uh, but then she came back tonight, or last night, and she was just like, well, it's a miracle. God. And you know what I was thinking about? The story of the disciples when Peter was sent to jail in the book of Acts, and the, and the believers are just praying earnestly, Lord, deliver him, deliver him, deliver him. Well, God delivers him. And he, and he goes over to the door where the people are praying, and he knocks on the door, and, and the sermon goes, uh, there's a guy that looks like Peter at the door. No, it is Peter. No, 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 it can't be Peter. He's in jail. We're praying for him. Well, yeah, but God answered your prayer. I felt that way last night. She came in. She goes, man, he's healed. I think he's going home tomorrow. I'm like, you're kidding me. And yet we've been praying that God would do that. <laughs> it's like, so it reminded me of that. But, you know, I think that's an important thing that you and I need to remember. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that you even ask or think. God has your best intentions. He's got, he's got his, his perfect will for you. And, and God wants to bless you according to his will. What an encouraging that is. Not only that, he's able 
the Bible says, even to subdue all things unto himself. Philippians 3.21. You know, sometimes this world seems so out of control and it seems like nobody has submitted to God. He's able to submit everybody unto him, subdue everything unto him. And then Jude 24, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Man, encouraging things. And here, of course, in verse 7, he's able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. That word means he's able to save you completely. Completely. You've never fallen too hard or gone too far or sinned too long that he is not able to save you completely if you'll just come to him. Let me just say that one more time. You've never fallen too hard or gone too far or sinned too long that he is not able to save you completely. Just let that sink in because sometimes the devil lies to us. You've blown it too many times. You've, you've gone too far. He'll never forgive you for that. That's a lie. He can save to the uttermost. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. I was looking at Adam Clark's commentary, and he, and he brought up this. He says, to make intercession for has a lot of meanings, and he lists them out. And, and, and I think every one of them applies. An intercessor is able, first of all, to come to or meet a person on any cause, whatever. Secondly, an intercessor is able to intercede, pray for, or entreat in behalf of one, one another. Remember when Peter was, Jesus said, Peter, and the devil's going to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. You know, Jesus is in heaven praying for you and I. An intercessor is also able to defend or vindicate a person. We have a, an adversary, the devil, who is accusing us before the Father in heaven. And Jesus, our high priest, our advocate, is up there saying, look at my righteousness. I shed my blood for him, for her. And, and he's our lawyer. He's advocating for you and I. He's defending us in heaven. And then he's also an intercessor also can commend, which means to present or to mention or to recommend. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And then the fifth thing he says is to furnish any kind of assistance or help. That's the kind of intercessor you and I have in heaven right now. He does all those things for you and I, for those who love him. Verse 26 for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and is become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. The priests under the, old, uh, under the law of Moses were men who were sinners. Like I said before, they weren't called priests because they were morally or spiritually above other men. They were just simply of the tribe of Levi. 
They were sinners who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And they had to do it on a daily basis. Why? Because they sinned daily, just like we do. Jesus is a better high priest because he lived a holy, undefiled life. And the Bible says separate from sinners. That doesn't mean that he doesn't identify with you and I. We talked about that also. He identifies with us in our weaknesses and because he was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. But what it means is that he didn't share in our sin. That was, he's not separate from you as far as he's holier. You know, well, he is holier, but you know, that, you, know, you can't approach him because he can't identify. No, Jesus can identify with you. But he never participated in sin. And so he is separate from sinners. And he was exalted above the heavens. Now, think about this. God created the heavens and the earth, right? The Bible tells us that. So if Jesus was exalted above the heavens, what does that make him? The only one who could be exalted above the heavens is the one who created the heavens. There's nobody else that could. And his sacrifice is perfectly complete. And I think this is another thing that some people kind of miss the boat on. His sacrifice never has to be repeated again. It never needs to be improved upon. That blood of Jesus Christ is so precious. You know, when we celebrate communion, and I bring this up quite frequently when we celebrate communion, it's like, yeah, we're drinking grape juice. It's a reminder of of Jesus' blood, and it's a reminder of his sacrifice for us. But that blood... That precious blood of Jesus Christ it is so powerful that 2,000 years after it was shed, it still has the power to forgive sins and to wash us clean. That's powerful. That's because his, his sacrifice was accepted once and for all. You know, on this cross, now I'm not knocking other churches, but on this cross, Jesus isn't on the cross. Why? Because he paid the price once for all, man. He doesn't need to be on there anymore. He's paid the price. Very important thing to understand. Jesus' role as our high priest will never end. 